You're listening to Sounds of Canyonlands Wildlife, recorded by Jack Leffler. And here, the soundscape of the San Juan River. Working both as a self-described loner and with comrades, including Edward Abbey and Gary Snyder, Jack was part of an early coterie of counterculturists and environmentalists who fought to thwart the plunder of natural resources in the Southwest. Leffler, also a jazz musician, fire lookout, museum curator, bioregionalist, and self-taught aural historian, shares some of his adventures, observations, and reflections today on the Rewilding Earth podcast. We start with Jack's thoughts these days around the topic of renaturalizing or rewilding human consciousness. Buckle up, listeners. Today's show is by far the most densely packed episode of Rewilding Earth podcast yet. As you will hear, Jack is leading what I would certainly call an adventure-packed life well-lived. Rewilding Earth podcast is supported by businesses such as Patagonia, Catula, and Biohabitats, as well as the Whedon Foundation and listeners like you. If you love the work that the Rewilding Institute is doing, please consider donating at rewilding.org. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter while you're there. One of the notions that I've really been working on quite some time, but is still evolving in my own mind, is re-naturalizing human consciousness. And one of the concepts that I've had to address is so many environmentalists regard their own role as stewards of habitat, to me seems erroneous, that we're more actually being stewarded by habitat. And this, to me, is a big thought. In other words, uh, renaming that, I would think of it as rewilding human consciousness. And I've taken a huge cue over a period of many years, but the evolution of my own thinking with regard to the notion of the commons has been very important. I'd first read Garrett Hardin's essay back in 1970, The Tragedy of the Commons, and then thanks to my great buddy Ed Abbey, uh, I was able to get together and interview Hardin face-to-face in a recorded interview in 1984. And... um, That really interested me enormously. Uh, He had written a recent essay, a then recent essay, entitled An Echolate View of the Human Predicament. And so I asked him to please talk about that as well as the tragedy. And uh, in the course of that, he talked about William Ophel's notion of nature abhorring a maximum. 
And one of the things that I've come to understand is that we have more than maximized the human population on this planet. In other words, we've way overpopulated. And I think that the current coronavirus and other aspects are one way, are ways that nature is intending to help us reduce our numbers because we couldn't quite pull it off of our own free will, so to speak. But apropos of all of that, thinking about the commons, I also later on, back in 2009 or 10, had the opportunity with my daughter to conduct an interview with Eleanor Olstrom, who had just received the 2009 Nobel Prize in economics for her book, Governing the Commons, where she introduced the concept that was actually originated by her husband of polycentric governance. I've long been uh, of the opinion that we have to decentralize governance big time. And I like to think of it in terms of decentralizing by watershed or what Gary Snyder would have called bioregion and thinking of it in those terms. And uh, the basis of that being that the governance from on high, federal governments, governance is uh, essentially reduced enormously and uh, grassroots governance is increased enormously and varying levels of governance in between. In other words, not totally throwing away the political system, but making it so that it's more equitably dispersed, so to speak, governance being more equitably dispersed. All of this thinking in terms of the commons and thinking of the planet itself is a biotic geophysical commons. And one of the thoughts that occurred to me, one of the many thoughts was that both Garrett Hardin and Eleanor Alstrom were still looking at the governance of the commons from the human perspective. And I realize that that's erroneous thinking in its own right by virtue of the fact that the commons should be self-governing. And that's what's interested me about thinking about habitat rewilding itself. For example, we live in rural northern New Mexico. We have a we own the deed to 12 and a half acres of landscape that had formerly been overgrazed by cattle and probably sheep earlier on. And rather than trying to fix it, so to speak, like some of our neighbors have done, uh, we've just let it continue to grow back and govern itself. And it's interesting to me to see what species really occur. One of the prevailing species, for example, is choya cactus, which is a defense mechanism rendered by the habitat itself to try to forestall the grazing of cattle. And I really see that as a means of also repopulating the commons of our little 12-acre piece here with many species who rely on the choya cactus to house them. A lot of different species of birds, including uh, um, different kinds of, uh, oh boy, the term escapes me now, but uh, curve-billed thrashers and the like, and also the um, different kinds of rodents use those as part of their habitat. 
and that increases the snake population. And so basically I'm watching this habitat where we've been now for 25 years reinvigorate its own sense of revitalization and uh, basically rewilding itself in the terms of the Rewilding Institute. And so I've taken that to heart. And what I've allowed or try to allow myself to do is to be outside in it a lot every day and allow that to creep into my consciousness so that basically also looking at commons, the, the notion of the commons, seeing human consciousness itself as a commons. And subsequently, I'm trying to renaturize or rewild my own commons of human consciousness. I don't know if any of that makes any sense at all, but that's really where my thinking is going right now. I, it reminds me actually of a conversation, I think it was Alan Watts, that prescient philosopher who is practically as relevant today as he was when he was in his heyday in the, his 50s and 60s, uh, about human nature and about what we started to do when we, we thought we were being technologically advanced, we still think of ourselves as such. And but the only way that we were able to even understand or begin to understand this globe that we live on with all its irregularities and very few straight lines and its messiness from someone coming from that perspective, um, we just laid lines over it, grid lines, latitude and longitude, and started making grids over the top of nature and then saying, now we understand it. And, and that has to affect what you're talking about, our consciousness and, and, our, and, and inside that, our attitude toward nature and necessarily then how we've been treating it thus far in this tiny, very, very short experiment. Well, yes, absolutely. And I think that that's a very fine way of presenting it. Actually, I knew Alan Watts back in the 60s and 70s. And actually, I met a fair number of people back in those days who, for whom I have enormous respect and who, some of whom became very dear friends, uh, one of whom was Gary Snyder, who was a very close friend also of Alan Watts. He was a lot closer to Alan than I was, but Alan and I did spend time together and engaged in conversations together, just the two of us. And I actually did babysit for his daughter. <laughs> way back when. But the upshot is, is that um, some of those people from that milieu had hugely inter uh, interested me, actually influenced me. People like Michael Harner, I don't know if that name rings a bell with you. He founded the Foundation for Shamanic Studies after he had finally retired as being the dean of the graduate anthro department at the New School in New York. Mike died a couple of years ago, and I miss him. But his thinking was amazing, and it was through him that I met other folks. Um, there are still some folks left alive from that milieu. I must say that I started out, so to speak, uh, in North Beach, you know, as an adult, a young adult back in 1958, after I got released from the United States Army. And uh, subsequently, I became very involved with a lot of the people in the so-called beat generation, and a lot of those friendships have continued to evolve. People like Stuart Brand and uh, et cetera. But the upshot is, is that I've sort of 
not quite self-isolated here in northern New Mexico, but I totally understand what you're saying. I can, from where I'm sitting, looking out my western window, I can look out over about, literally about 10,000 square miles of northern New Mexico. And, you know, basically I'm looking out over the northern aspect of the northern Rio Grande watershed. And I can see a fence on the western boundary which corresponds perfectly to what you're saying. Indeed, we have gridded, we've gridlocked so much of it. But I take current cues from, uh, well, a huge cue from a lot of my experience with Native American peoples from, say, as far north as Nez Perce country up in Idaho, as far south as Chiapas uh, in southern Mexico. I've lived with them. At one point, I lived with the Navajos at the remotest part of the Navajo Reservation uh, for seven months back in 1964. And it was there that I realized the tremendous extent that habitat helps shape cultural perspective. And in other words, those Navajo people, those traditional Navajo people with whom I lived, none of whom except one spoke any English, but they were so shaped by their habitat and their whole perspective was so filled with a sense of the sacred quality of habitat that I really have taken that to heart my whole life long. And actually that was what resulted in starting the Black Mesa Defense Fund back in 1969-70. And... Um, working with Hopi and traditional Navajo Indians to try to thwart uh, the Black Mesa Mine, which then served coal to the uh, Navajo Generating Station to basically power up the Central Arizona Project down uh, taking water out of the Colorado River. I got so engrossed in that that in 2000 I did a six-part radio series for public radio on the Colorado River in the West and looking at the Central Arizona Project as probably the worst environmental debacle ever visited upon the Southwest, that and the um, Glen Canyon Dam. But seeing how the whole thing was mapped out in an almost mathematical fashion to get this to work, to make something else work, but all to satisfy presumed human needs. Whereas that Central Arizona project with a Black Mesa mine basically has all but destroyed the traditional cultural perspectives of both the uh, traditional and Navajo and Hopi Indians, which to me is another travesty that's really not very well known even today, although it ought to be. And, uh, looking at the American Southwest as the national sacrifice area, it was basically looked at by uh, from the point of view of what resources are available to satisfy presumed human needs as our population has continued to grow and grow and grow. And one of the things that I try to point out every now and then in a lecture is that in the course of my lifetime, I was born in 1936, and the human population of the planet had just passed 2 billion people. 
And today it's at almost 7.8 billion people. And if I last another few years, I will have seen the human population of the planet grow by 400%. That's another sort of a statistical way of looking at it. But we are so overlaying with our own species that the gridlock is becoming unclear at this point. Back in the days when I would be having conversation with Alan Watts, I was also writing for a, an ancient <laughs> environmental magazine known as Clear Creek, and uh, he, which he read and I read. And uh, knowing Alan, his book, The Way of Zen, another dear friend of his, a man named Roger Summers, they had a place up in Muir Woods, sort of a little commune. Gary was Gary Snyder was involved in that and a few other people. And it was a really interesting experiment. Now it's sort of falling apart. It's gone. Nobody lives there anymore. Uh, when I met Alan, he was living on one end of a houseboat owned by a, a Greek artist named Jean Varda, who was a an amazing fellow human. This is a time when Bohemian culture was reaching some sort of a beautiful level uh, in California, in the Bay Area. Uh, it was a spectacular time to be there, really, and to see all of these different minds come together to try to create a sort of a Bohemian cultural paradigm, which existed, still does to a certain extent, but it's been, much of it has been subsumed by uh, today's modern culture. One of the projects that has interested me that I gotten involved in, oh boy, about five years ago, I uh, was invited to co-curate an exhibition for the New Mexico History Museum on uh, the evolution of counterculture in New Mexico and the Southwest, because I'd been very much a part of it from way back when. And uh, that was fascinating to me. I conducted quite an array of interviews. I already had some extending back in time into the 70s and 80s with people like Snyder and Philip Whalen and others, Peter Coyote, uh, all friends from days of yore, but who had been profoundly countercultural in their pursuits and their headsets. And seeing how that really affected what was happening here in the Southwest. And part of what I tried to bring out in that exhibition, which also resulted in a, gee, an eight-part radio series for public radio and another book, was that much of the burgeoning radical environmental movement was given great food for thought, a great impetus to move forward as a result of the counterculture movement. And this is something that was interesting to behold. In other words, I've had two great anarchist friends in this lifetime, one of whom was Ed Abbey, the other is Gary Snyder. Gary just turned 90 last month. It's hard to believe. And um, seeing how these two great minds that never met physically, but they did correspond, uh, came together to create different perspectives, really interested me about all of this. And their contribution to the so-called commons of human consciousness was enormous. Like Ed's book, 
Desert Solitaire still rings true in Gary's beautiful sort of four-part essay entitled The Four Changes, which he penned in 1969 and which was first published, as I recall, in 1970, is a beautiful piece. And it was a beautiful thing to behold. And these two guys had great respect and mutual, well, sort of a sense of, in a Kropotkinian sense, they understood the notion of mutual cooperation big time. And uh, while they never met, as a matter of fact, the three of us were supposed to run the San Juan River together, but Ed up and died, and so that took care of that. And it would have been a, a really interesting river trip for me, I'll tell you. But the whole concept was amazing. After Ed died, I did record Gary talking about his perspective of Ed. And Ed, of course, would talk to me at great length about his perspective of Gary a lot of people don't recognize the fact that Ed got his master's degree in philosophy and he wrote his thesis on the morality of political violence based on his studies of five anarchist philosophers, including Proudhon, William Godwin, uh, Georges Sorel in Paris, uh, Mikhail Bakunin, and Peter Kropotkin. And he was a true scholar and yet he told me once we were hiking down in Mexico that his favorite little book of all time was the Tao Te Ching. And boy, oh boy, that really interested me because I'd been interested. I'd read that book starting in the late 50s when I lived in Big Sur. And uh, so we really got into it over that. And it was later revealed that my favorite, uh, call it interpretation of that book, not a direct translation, was written by a man named Archie Bame, who it turned out was Ed's primary philosophy professor for his master's degree at the University of New Mexico. And I later interviewed Archie Bame, and we really got into it. He regarded, <laughs> they denied Ed the chance to write his sense of what would have been the history of anarchist thought and instead, they relegated him to this small thesis that involved the five guys I just mentioned. And he wrote a great thesis. But in retrospect, Archie Bame told me that he regarded Ed Abbey as the greatest anarchist thinker of the latter half of the 20th century, which he was. Well, he and Gary together. And so this said a lot to me about how academia itself can create all of these fundamental grids in consciousness. One of the things that I have long really worried about, this is like casting grid lines in human consciousness, is institutions themselves. And I, Ed and I talked about institutions and how we try to disaffiliate as much as possible with them. It's impossible to completely, but nonetheless, to try to remain as close to what comes out of us naturally rather than relying on institutional thinking, which ultimately relates to or actually invigorates bureaucracy, which the main point of which, as far as I can see, is to define and defend procedure. And boy, you talk about grid lines and human consciousness. That's part of it. 
And so I guess where I'm coming from in all of this, Jack, is to say that to me, the best way to try to eradicate as much of that system of grids, both on the planet and in one's own mind and the collective mind of our species, is to be out in it very much on a daily basis and let the natural habitat creep into the mind rather than trying to oversee or even steward it. That, to me, is intrinsically wrong thinking. Stewardship is a human characteristic, and it sounds great, but it's frequently misaligned with reality. You, you spoke about the beat generation and that magical time. There must have been a sense of like hope and newness and adventure and this new way of thinking and seeing the world. And, and it sounded like a bright, new, shiny spot at that point in your life. And then you watched that go away. You've watched other things come and go. And at each of those times, there were thinkers like Watts and Snyder and, and, and others who were bringing up ideas that could conceivably change if they were adopted in a wide way where we would be today. But those things have come and gone and, and they didn't catch on, obviously, as strongly as they needed to in order to change people's minds about the way that we view the natural world and our place in it. What do you think, looking back on all of that now, is our way out, out from under all of those layers of coming and going of great ideas about how to be humans the right way? Well, bearing in mind that when the beat scene was in full swing back in the late 50s and early 60s, I'm trying to think. I think we hit a human population of around 3 billion <clears throat> around 1960 or thereabouts. And uh, you're right, there was a sense... Well, let me back up a little bit. In 1957, when I was still in the Army, I was in a, an Army band. I'd been drafted. I did 16 weeks, mind you, of basic training, not just eight, and uh, finally wangled my way into an Army band because I'd been a professional jazz musician. In July of 1957, which is 63 years ago next month, uh, I was witness to the detonation of atomic bombs at the Nevada Proving Grounds uh, from a distance of seven miles away while playing music, if you can imagine the absurdity. It was totally Fellini-esque, but it, that was a very defining moment for me because I realized that any government that could condone the detonation of such a bomb that would not just take out, you know, tens of thousands of fellow humans, but also the entire biotic community was not a cultural concept that I wanted to really participate in. And so that really shut me in those tracks right there. I mean, there was certainly a bohemian element to me, and I'd read a lot of good stuff as a teenager. I think my during my teenage years, my two favorite authors in those days were John Steinbeck and Ernest Hemingway both of whom were really revolutionary in their own thinking relative to their own time. And so that's when I became very much an anarchist in my own right, even thought of myself as one then. And so when I migrated to North Beach after I got out of the Army 
and then remained pretty much in the Bay Area for the next few years. It was a wonderful time, a terrific time, but I could also sense that people were starting to move into California in a big way, uh, people who were motivated by that sense of almost bohemian-esque, boy, enlightenment, or enlightening of mind, let's put it that way, and uh, other ways of lifestyle. And it was, I got to say, that it was just fantastic, the energy that prevailed in in North Beach was the, it still is, I think, the City Lights bookstore. Uh, uh, and Ferlin Getty himself just turned 100 this year, and he's still with us as far as I know. And uh, in Sausalito, where I spent a lot of time, was another bookstore. Oh, boy. Herb Beckman owned it. It was right on Bridgeway. And it was where I spent a lot of time reading and uh living in Gate 5, where Alan lived and Varda lived and other people. There was a houseboat uh, community there. Varda got me a houseboat to live on for a while, and then I later moved into uh, Larkspur because I could. I found a place to live up on the side of Mount Tamopias that was less populated. And then in 1962, I decided to leave Marin County, which had become too populated, uh, drawn by so many people of the so-called beat persuasion or bohemian persuasion, and uh, moved back down to Big Sur. And then that started to get too far out. And so in October of 1962, I moved to New Mexico, which was still very lightly populated in those days with a land area of about 121,000 square miles. There were less than Eight million or eight hundred thousand people living here. Now the population is up to a little over two million, but it's still relatively sparse, which I love. And then people started to come to visit me. Uh, I got a fire lookout job for three years. Uh, no tower, no nothing up there. I was able to get my pickup truck up on top and had built a camper on it so that. That's where I lived on the in my. <laughs> that's where I could sleep if it were lightning or raining. But the rest of the time I was pretty much just there in this forested wilderness area. It's not a designated wilderness, but it was wilderness-like. It was wild, and that's where I truly came to understand that there's a lot more to cognition than human consciousness. That became intuitively to me, that I could, I could sense the forest itself, all of the different species that lived in the forest in a state of, uh, boy, mutual reciprocity. And it was like that. And I realized that I was part of the wildlife up there. And little by little, uh, by the mid-60s, uh, what had happened in the counterculture movement on the West Coast sort of, there was a moment of truth known as the Trips Festival. I think it was in January 1966 when Stuart Brand, Ken Kesey, and Ramon Sender put together the Trips Festival at Longshoreman's Hall. And the punch, there was a huge bowl of punch that was constantly being refurbished that was laced with acid. And that's regarded by some historians 
as the bridge between the beach scene and the hippie culture. And certainly people moved more out of North Beach and over into the Haight-Ashbury. And there was a great thinker back in those days, a man named Freeman House, who's no longer with us, but Gary Snyder and I went up and interviewed him, oh boy, 15 years ago, when he was still living uh, up in the Matoli River region. And he had really brought that whole county together around the watershed of the Matoli River and had created a county of environmentally totally conscious people who understood that that was where governance, if there were going to be governance, it should be within the context of the watershed. But Freeman House had also been in the forefront of the whole digger experience in the Haight-Ashbury. Emmett Grogan founded the diggers, and then that turned into the street theater. Peter Coyote was very much a part of that. And I got, I met Emmett, I never got a chance to interview him, but I've interviewed Freeman and Peter talking about that whole phenomenon in the Haight-Ashbury and how that over a period of a year and a half or so, once ladies started having babies, <laughs> it was revealed that the women needed a more secure, less, I don't know quite how to put it, frenetic lifestyle than was being practiced in the Haight-Ashbury. And that was the beginning of the communal system. And that was soon revealed to be, California was too populated and by that time too expensive to be able to afford to do the communal thing. And so there was a, an eastward migration into northern New Mexico that was pretty profound. And uh, the communal system really evolved here and I was able to really explore a lot of the different communes. I was never myself a communard. I've always been something of a loner. But I was fascinated and I had friends and acquaintances in many of the different communes. Each one reflected a different perspective. For example, Lama was very much involved in, and remains actually a spiritual center where people can practice different spiritual uh, ways of looking at things. Uh, one called New Buffalo is based more on becoming self-sustaining in an agrarian sense. They raised alfalfa, they raised cows, they were able to make a living selling alfalfa and milk, and they were accepted by the Chicano community to the extent that one of the guys who lived at the New Buffalo commune actually became the mayor domo, the major domo of the Asequia or irrigation canal up there, which had been basically uh, major domoed, so to speak, by Chicanos for hundreds of years. And so there was a real, there's a term here in New Mexico called mestizaje, which means the mixture. And there was, to a great extent, a real mestizaje that had previously occurred between the Spanish who moved here first in 1598 and the Puebloan Indians. I look at the Pueblos, the Indian Pueblos, like gardens of consciousness. And I've gotten to know a fair number of these people as dear, dear friends, very close friends. And boy, there is a wisdom inherent in traditional indigenous culture that's totally lacking in ours. And uh, I mean, the term the noble savage was coined way back when, probably early in the 20th century, people don't understand the extent to which 
the culture has shaped the uh, the has been shaped by the habitat that everybody lives in and i call that indigenous mindedness and that was a huge cue for me there was a great lady named rena swensel she passed away about 5 years ago now but who was like a sister and she was from the tewa pueblo of santa clara and she actually entrusted me with a lot of the internal workings of the Puebloan mind and how the sacred nature of habitat was the prevailing characteristic of how everything was the commons. We discussed the commons. She'd actually gotten a PhD. Reason, the reason for that was in order to be able to articulately defend the Native American perspective in a white man's world, so to speak, and a brilliant woman. Uh, that her family, I met her mother, recorded her mother, I recorded Rena, I recorded her daughter, I've known, I recorded her grandson, and uh, even now her great grandkids, I know them. I regard that as probably the most brilliant family in America. It's unbelievably incredible. But the upshot is, is that people like Rena and other dear, dear friends, not just, uh, it wasn't just, uh, Puebloan culture, like the Hopis and the Zunis and the Rio Grande Puebloans, those are all Puebloan cultures. The Navajo people, the Apachean people, especially in another sense, the Tohono O'odham people, the Papago, formerly thought of as the Papago people. I have a great friend who's still alive down there. He's now an elder, known him for 30 or 40 years, named Camilas Lopez. And he's a culture bearer for the Odom people. And he said to me one of the most profound things I've ever heard, which is, and this is a direct quote, if you look at nature and cannot see yourself within it, then you're too far away. And that really touched me deeply. And listening to other Tahona Odom, I would record them speaking to me when we'd be sitting out in the middle of the Sonoran Desert under a Palo Verde tree, and they would tell me their perspectives and getting all of this wisdom, going even further. Gary Paul Nabhan is one of our most formidable ethnobotanists. He's a wonderful writer. He's got, gee, maybe 25 or 30 books out by now. He's a wonderful poet, but a fantastic scientist who understands that science is not just about reductionist perspective which is very much gridlining everything from my perspective. He sees the bigger picture. But he and his wife, Lori Monty, the three of us have spent a great deal of time with the Seri Indians down in Sonora, Mexico, who are among the last hunter-gatherers in North America. And we really, they were looking at them from different perspectives. I was looking at it pretty much from the notion of ethnomusicology and trying to record their songs because their songs are amazing to me. And they, those, the songs that they sing actually adhere them to their homeland in a way. And Gary once said to me after he, he spent more time there than I and speaks a little bit of their language, which by the way is it's ostensibly its own phylum related to no other known language which blows me away when I think about that. But where did they come from? Anyway, uh, there's songs that I've recorded. It hear them to Homeland. For example, 
at one point I was in the home of this Seri shaman, a man named Jesus Rojo Martinez. And he told me in his pidgin Spanish, that's what I speak as well, because I've spent a lot of time with Mexican Indian, uh, that he was going to sing the song of the leaf cutter ant. But before he sang the song, his countenance assumed the characteristics of the leaf cutter ant. And it was from that position that he sang the song four times, and thereafter it took him 15 or 20 seconds to regain his more human countenance. And I realized that he understood the leafcutter ant from inside the mind of the leafcutter ant. And he understood more about the ecology of the Sonoran coastline there along the Sea of Cortez than any ecologist or scientist could ever possibly know. It was just an amazing thing. I recorded maybe 350 of those songs and put them back into the culture. That's the point of it. Because those songs are mnemonic devices for remembering how to keep it together within that culture. And so these are part of the things that I've tried to do over the years. Uh, I backed away from pretty much all organizations and just tried to wander around out there. I recorded a lot of habitats, for example, uh, in stereo. Fortunately, when I'm out in the field, I use a pair of really far out mics, one of which is a, um, a cardioid, the other is a um, figure of eight mic. And I use a really top rate sound device recorder out there. And I'm able to get really good stereo imaging of various habitats. And when I'm making radio programs, what I try to do is put the human voice within a more uh, a greater chorus of the biotic community. So to try to, in some way, get people to understand that we're but just one voice in the greater biotic community. And so that's the kind of way I've been approaching it all of this time, is looking at it as an integrated system. I have to say this, one of the most successful interviews, one of the most interesting interviews I've ever conducted was with Fritjof Capra, whom you may recall, he wrote the Tao of Physics back in the 70s. In his most recent book, entitled A System's View of Life, colon, A Unifying Vision, is amazing to me. Fritjof got himself a PhD in quantum physics in Austria back in around 1970 sometime. And after he finished the Tao of Physics, having been influenced himself very much by Zen Buddhism and other Asian practices, retrained his mind in ecology and biology. And he collaborated with a, a, an Italian biologist, Pier Luisi Luigi, on this book. But it's a fantastic book. I, I personally still subscribe to one publication, and that's The New Scientist. It's a scientific uh, magazine published in Britain. And this book was reviewed in that magazine. And I had met Fritjof back in the 80s. He came by my house once in Santa Fe and we became acquainted. And uh, so I called him up in 2014 and asked if I could fly out to Berkeley and interview him. And I spent a great day with Fritjof. But he pointed out he sees it, the system's view as a non-reductionist perspective. He sees the value of 
reductionist thinking when you're pursuing something, but more than that, he sees the entire integrated bigger picture. And he took a huge cue from a Chilean biologist who really has blown me away, a man named Umberto Maturana, who still lives. Basically, Maturana forwards the notion that life and cognition are two aspects of the same phenomenon, even on a cellular level, with or without a nervous system. So that a level of cognition exists in absolutely every cell, and that every cell is part of a bigger organism, and that the entire collective of organisms comprise a biotic community, etc., etc., expanding on that whole notion until you're looking at the entire biosphere as filled with cognitive apparatus, so to speak, cognitive organisms, so that the planet has a mind of its own. And we have tried to subsume that mind with our over-exploitation of everything. William Ophels stated something so beautifully, nature abhors a maximum. He was, uh, he very much affected Garrett Hardin's thinking, by the way. And uh, what it boils down to is that we have maximized our species. We are now out of control. And somehow, whether it's by our own volition or some other volition that we can't explain, our numbers are bound to be reduced. And our effect on the planet is bound to be reduced. It will have resulted in an entirely new biotic community by virtue of the extinction of species. As E.O. Wilson pointed out, that uh, this is the first time of the, this is the sixth greatest extinction of species episode of extinction of species in the last 540 million years, and it's the first time it's been caused by a given species. Usually it's been other things. I just read in New Scientist, by the way, that many scientists are now considering the idea that all five of the earlier extinction of species were primarily caused by uh, climate warming, which is very interesting. So th th these are just some of the many factors that I try to keep in my head when I'm working at this point. And unfortunately, my head is getting <laughs> considerably older. And boy, trying to keep it all together gets to be a trip. But uh, I'm now working on yet one more radio series. I don't know how many more of those I've got in me, but it's going to be to try to incorporate some of the thinking that I've just tried to describe to you in it. And it will play the voices of many of the different people that I've recorded over the years. I have to say that Ed Abbey was probably as prescient as any individual I've ever known. His mind was incredible. Far his thinking and capacity for thought, to me, none of his writing comes close to even encompassing his mind. It was an amazing mind. And boy, I'll tell you the conversations that we had over the decades that we tromped across the Southwest together was amazing. And boy, dead 31 years now. And uh, I just reviewed some stuff that I'd recorded of Ed not long ago. And he was so right on the mark. He too was a systems thinker, as is Gary Snyder. I think as is any great mind has to be.
Wow. All I can think right now is that you and I are not done, sir. There's just, <laughs> there's just no way that this could be done in, in an hour anyway. I mean, just no way. So this will be to be continued. Beautiful. Thanks, Jack. Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. We do what we do because of you. This podcast is supported by listeners like you who long to live in a wilder world. Please consider donating at rewilding.org and subscribe to our weekly news and article digest while you're there. To go the extra mile, you can follow and share Rewilding Earth on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Bonus points for sharing this podcast with your friends. To listen to past episodes, go to rewilding.org pod. That's rewilding.org pod.